you want to take your Bible again and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. In the church Bible, that's page 1210, or in the larger print Bibles, 1874. We've been looking at Hebrews over the last few months. And we saw last week as we began to look at chapter 11, this chapter tells us the story of faith. And it does that in two ways. On one level, this chapter tells us how faith works. What it means to have faith, what it means to live by faith. But this chapter is also a history of God's faithfulness. How he has shown himself to be worthy of our faith. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 16. And those verses showed the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and also Abraham's family. And alongside all of that, we were shown as well God's faithfulness to all those people. And the passage ended by showing that faith looks to the promised future. That future was described in two ways. It was called the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And it was also called a heavenly country. All the people we've just mentioned died without receiving what God had promised. But they died trusting God would one day deliver on what he promised. And he would give them a share in it. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And look at the story of faith, part two. We're going to pick up at verse 17 of chapter 11, and I'll read right through to chapter 12, verse 3. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel, 
By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more can I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is God's work. And the first section of this tells us faith trusts God for the best future. All the people in verses 17 to 31 find themselves in situations where trusting God looked like a sure way to mess up their future. First we have Abraham. Last week we heard how God called him. How God made great promises to him. God promised to give Abraham a land of his own. And God said, I will give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky. Which was a wonderful idea. Except, when God said that, Abraham was an old man, his wife Sarah was an old woman, and they had never been able to have any children. But miraculously, Sarah did give birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac was the key to the fulfillment of God's promises. 
But then God said to Abraham, I want you to take your only son, climb a mountain with him, and then sacrifice him to me. Now who knows what went through Abraham's mind at that point. But God, this boy is the only way for your promises to be fulfilled. We have waited a lifetime for this boy to come. And now you're asking me to kill him? Well, whatever Abraham thought, what Abraham actually did was climb the mountain, build an altar, and lay Isaac on the altar. And verse 19 tells us where Abraham's thoughts ended up, wherever they might have started. This is where they ended up. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, Abraham surrendered his future to God. Even though it seemed like obedience to God was going to mess up his future completely. Abraham trusted God would make it work somehow. And as he prepared to sacrifice Isaac, God said, Take your son off the altar. I see your faith and I renew my promise to you. Now, if we're going to look for how this applies to us, we have to be very, very careful. Because the application is not, if you believe God is asking you to offer a human sacrifice, go ahead and do it. The thing with Isaac was a one-off. It was a unique foreshadowing of the day when God would sacrifice his only son for real. So God is not going to ask you to do what he asked Abraham to do. And the application here is not, if God asks you to give something up, once he sees you're willing to give it up, then he'll give it back to you. I used to think like that. And operate like that. If I'll just convince God I'm willing to go without this thing that I really want, then he'll give it to me. That's not how it works. This is about truly surrendering our future to God. Trusting he will provide the best future. This is about obeying God's word, even if obedience looks like it's going to mess up our future. So for example, when you and I are tempted to be dishonest, The temptation comes to us because we're in a situation where honesty looks like it's going to ruin our prospects in some way. In faith, we decide to behave honestly anyway. And we surrender the future to God. We obey his word, trusting he will give us a better future than dishonesty could give us. Well, in the verses that follow, we're giving, given more examples, all of them making the same point. Verses 20 and 21 mention Isaac blessing his sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob going on in turn to bless Joseph's sons years later. And the connection is that in both cases, the younger son was blessed instead of the older son. Now, that seems like no big deal to us today. 
But in the culture of the time, being the firstborn was really significant. It made you the primary heir to whatever was going. But when it came to Jacob and Esau, Isaac had the faith to follow God's direction and pass Abraham's blessing on to Jacob, the younger son, instead of Esau, the firstborn. And later when Jacob came to bless Joseph's sons, he deliberately gave the blessing to Ephraim, the youngest, instead of Manasseh, the firstborn. That was not the way things were done. It was messing about with a family's future. But in faith, Isaac and Jacob surrendered their family's future to God. Trusting that he would provide the best future for their family. And so the question is, do you trust God enough to go against what our culture says is best? Will you teach your children to fit in? Or will you teach them the wisdom of being different? And doing things differently. Doing them differently from the way everyone around them is doing it. Will you support what this world teaches them? That life is really about getting the best stuff and the best job and the most money? Or will you teach them life is about knowing and loving God? And all the other stuff, as nice as it is, is really just fluff. Will you teach your family those things by your words, yes, but even more importantly, by your example? Will you teach them those things even when it looks like it's going to hamper their future? Will you trust God to provide the best future for your children? The next example is Moses. Moses was born in Egypt to Israelite parents, and he was born at a time when Israelite baby boys were being killed by the Egyptians. That was being done on Pharaoh's orders to stop the growth of the Israelites. They were making him nervous. But in the midst of that infanticide, Moses was saved. Not only saved, he was brought up by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was set, he was on course to enjoy all the wealth and power of Egypt. But look down to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses must have known about the promises to Abraham. That God would lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses had so much going for him in Pharaoh's palace. Siding with his own people looked certain to ruin Moses' future. But Moses did side with his people. He intervened to help an Israelite slave. They were all slaves at that time. And with that decision, Moses lost his life in Pharaoh's palace. But, Hebrews tells us, he was willing to sacrifice those temporary rewards 
for a greater lasting reward. Look how verse 25 puts it. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. We might wonder about what verse 26 tells us. Is this saying Moses knew about Jesus Christ? Well, literally, the text talks about the disgrace of Christ. So the point is, when Moses gave up the treasures of this world, he suffered the same kind of loss and humiliation that Christ did. We're not being told Moses had Jesus in mind. We're being told he took the same path Jesus would later take. We read about it in Philippians earlier. And we're going to see it again at the end of this passage. Like Jesus, Moses gave up temporary joy for eternal joy. He was willing to lose the here and now rewards of Egypt to gain the eternal rewards promised by the invisible God. Like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before him, and like Jesus after him, Moses showed by his actions that he trusted God for the best future. And when it comes to us, we all realize there are rewards to be had here and now. We live in a society that rejects Christ And we are surrounded by patterns of life that defy God's blueprint for life. And there are pleasures and rewards to be had by joining in with all that. We don't need to pretend otherwise. The Bible doesn't pretend otherwise. It says Moses could have enjoyed the pleasures of sin. He could have had fun with the Egyptians. Just like you and I could have fun by walking away from Christianity and throwing ourselves into a godless life. Sin has rewards and pleasures for you. But there is another word in verse 25. It says those pleasures and rewards are fleeting. They're temporary. And that doesn't just mean they end at the point of death. Most people find those pleasures go sour much, much quicker than that. They leave us worn out and empty long before we die. So if you and I are wise, we will look beyond what sin can give us. We will look to a greater lasting reward. And in order to do that, we have to trust God for the best future. We can't have it both ways. 
Moses could not choose Egypt and God. Egypt, remember, was in rebellion against God. Choosing one meant losing the other. And it's the same for us. Verses 28 to 31 give us more examples of trusting that obedience to God is always the best option. No matter how crazy it seems, or how likely it seems to mess up our future. For Israel, it took faith to walk that path through the Red Sea, with only God holding the water back. It took faith to march around Jericho, trusting God to do what he said and topple those walls. It took faith for Rahab to side with God's people, rather than trust those solid walls of Jericho. She was in the city, which seemed to be so secure. But she joined the Israelites who were outside the city living in tents. In verses 32 to 38, make another point. They tell us faith looks for a better resurrection. This section is divided in half. There's a massive change that happens right in the middle of these verses. Look first at verse 32 down to the middle of verse 35. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Here's a list of men and women who trusted God and received glorious victories in this life. They conquered, they overcame, they escaped, their enemies fell before them. This list gives us one great success after another. Some of the people are named, some of them aren't, but we can figure them out. It was Daniel who shut the mouths of lions when the king threw him in the lion's den. It was Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who quenched the fury of the flames. They emerged unharmed from the king's furnace. During the ministry of Elijah, a boy was raised back to life and given again to his mother. And another during the ministry of Elisha. This is great stuff. We love to hear stories like this. When stuff like this happens today, the books about it fly off the shelves. We love to read about Christians healed from cancer. Or delivered from concentration camps. Or the three Christians who planted a church and within three months it grew to 3,000 people. I don't know if that really happened. But we would love to hear about it if it did happen, right? 
And if it's a really, really good success story, we might even make a film about it. But if you and I think that is what following God is really all about, what are we going to do with the rest of this section? Look back to verse 35. Right after telling us about those women who received back their dead raised to life again, we get this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. The first half of the list was full of miracles. Enemies defeated, deliverance from pain, weaknesses turned into strength. All those people escaped death. But here, there are no miracles. Weakness is not turned into strength. These people don't escape. Their enemies win. Death wins. If you and I think faith is all about miracles and success, if we think faith leads to overcoming every enemy and every obstacle, then life is going to crush our faith. It will stamp our faith out. The Bible does not tell us faith is all about miracles and success. The Bible is blunt. People who follow God often suffer defeat and loss. People who follow God don't always find a job or a spouse. They don't always get healed. They don't always lead their prison guards to Christ. Sometimes they get sawn in two by their prison guards. People who follow God don't always lead their family to Christ. Sometimes their family stones them to death. For every victorious Christian who escapes the edge of the sword... There's a John the Baptist who gets beheaded by the sword. What are you and I going to do with that? Well, what we have to do, what Hebrews tells us to do, is to prioritize the right kind of resurrection. What do I mean by that? Well, everybody in the top half of the list had a resurrection. They looked like they were dead, but they escaped. Some of them escaped enemy armies. Some of them escaped lions. Some of them escaped fire. Some of them were miraculously restored to physical life. Wonderful, exciting stuff. Amazing stories. But everything in the first half of the list is a temporary success. Even the women 
whose boys were raised back to life. It was a temporary resurrection. Those boys would die again. Daniel escaped the lions, but he got old and died. His friends escaped the king's furnace, but they died too, later. And as wonderful as it is, when somebody today is healed from cancer, they will still die in the end. If you and I put our hope on success and deliverance in this life, then we are doomed to disappointment. We're going to be disappointed partly because we're not always given success in this life. And we're going to be disappointed partly because even when we do get it, it is only temporary. Biblical faith looks for a better resurrection. Look again at verse 35 and see the contrast. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. There is the two resurrections. Resurrection back to a few more years of this life versus resurrection to eternal life. When we're told these people refuse to be released, the point is they would not renounce their faith in order to gain release. It's not that they asked to be held and tortured. They held on to their faith even though it meant torture. Even though it meant loss and pain and death. And they were able to do that because their hearts were set on an even better resurrection. Whatever they lost in this life, they knew they'd get it all back, only better in the life to come. If you and I follow God expecting deliverance in this life from being mocked, misunderstood or hated, if we expect God to give us healing from every sickness, if we expect a life full of miraculous escapes, full of weakness being turned to strength, then sooner or later we will end up badly disappointed. Because the Bible doesn't promise that. Yes, we might get some of those temporary resurrections, some escapes and successes here and now. We pray for those things, and we should, and we rejoice when God gives us those things. But what we have been promised is a resurrection in the future. To eternal life, not just more of this life. The victory and success we are promised is not temporary, it's eternal. And it's only by looking to that future victory and making that our priority that we will persevere through loss today and rejection and pain and death today.
Maybe we read the description here though and we think about these people who endured so much and we wonder to ourselves, were they just a different breed from us? Were they made of better stuff than we are? No, they weren't. But they probably had a better focus on the resurrection than we do. They were not immune to pain and rejection and hardship. They bled just like you and I do. They had the same nervous system in their body that we do. Their bones broke just as easily as ours do. They loved their families as much as we do. They felt the cold and the hunger the way you and I do. These were not people who had graduated from some kind of gladiator training camp. These were ordinary people who endured because their hope was set on the world to come. Not on this world. So how do you and I get that? How do we get it in our own lives? Well, that's where our passage finishes. It tells us faith follows our champion. Why was it that Old Testament believers did not receive what God had promised them? Why did God delay in giving it to them? The answer is, God delayed because he wanted you and me to share in what he had promised. Look at verse 39 of chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith. That's the people in verses 1 to 38. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We have such a privilege that God would wait just to have us in his kingdom. As we look back, we have so many reasons to live with faith today. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. When we read about being surrounded by a great cloud or a great host of witnesses, the idea is not that all the people we've heard about are sitting watching us. As if there's a big grandstand with Enoch passing around the popcorn to everyone. Now those people are not witnesses in the sense that they're looking at what we're doing today. No doubt they can probably see us. But the point being made is all of their lives bear witness to us. As we observe their lives of faith and God's faithfulness to them, they inspire us. Their example motivates us to throw off anything that hampers our faith and distracts our focus. Their example encourages us to disentangle ourselves from sin. 
None of us would show up for an Olympic race with our shoelaces tied together. We wouldn't try to run an Olympic race wearing heavy boots with a winter jacket and the pockets jammed full of stuff. We'd strip ourselves down to the minimum so that we could run free and with no hindrances. And so Hebrews says, when it comes to running the race of faith, we will want to leave behind sin and compromises and things that will cause us to stumble or wander off the track. Someone says, has said, if we would travel far, we must travel light. Some things in our lives just have to go from our lives. Trying to carry some sin with us that we just won't let go of. Or some unholy ambition we have that we refuse to lay aside. Or some relationship that pulls us away from God. Trying to live a life of faith with those distractions is like trying to run a marathon with our laces tied together. Or carrying a massive rucksack on our back. You and I might love the stuff that's in the rucksack. But if we don't chuck it, we will never finish the marathon. And what we're being told is the life of faith is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Verse 1 says it requires perseverance. If we only had to trust God for a day, and then we had all the things he's promised... That would be simple. But that is not how it works. The race is long. It's testing. It requires commitment. Persevering through difficulty. Through times when it seems just too hard to go on. And so because we have to travel far, we must travel light. We have to hold things lightly. We can't afford to carry stuff that gets in the way of our allegiance to God. As we run this race, it's great to have so many Old Testament witnesses. So many stories to encourage us. But we have something even better than that. The next verses are actually the climax that the whole of chapter 11 has been building up to. It's great to look to Abraham and Moses and all the others. But our greatest example is Jesus. Look what the middle of verse 2 tells us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The faith that we saw in Abraham and Moses and all the others in the Old Testament, all of that was just a little taste, just a foretaste of the faith and perseverance that Jesus Christ showed. Jesus trusted his father enough 
to endure the cross. Not just the pain, but the deep shame that went with the cross. And he endured all of that in faith that his Father would raise him to eternal joy. And Jesus' faith in his Father was vindicated. He was raised to the right hand of God's throne. The place of preeminence and authority. And so, Jesus' example encourages us. Keep trusting God in your own ordeals. Keep trusting him when you're opposed and you're ridiculed for your faith in God. And Jesus' vindication and enthronement, that motivates us. We can be sure when we look at Jesus, it's worth it to persevere in the life of faith. It's worth it to stay committed to God. It leads to joy in the end. And so as we run this race, verse 2 says, we're to run it fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we feel like giving up, we're to consider him and take heart from his perseverance and the reward that came at the end of it all. But as great as it is to have Jesus as our example, verse 2 is saying more than that. The Jesus we are to fix our eyes on is also the pioneer and perfecter of faith. This word translated pioneer has come up before in the book of Hebrews. It could be translated champion. And the sense is, not only did Jesus go ahead of us, He's not only our forerunner in the race of faith, he actually blazed a trail that wasn't there before. He opened the way to God. Earlier Hebrews called it a new and living way. The Old Testament men and women of faith lived before Jesus came. They could not receive their eternal inheritance until Jesus came and opened the way to it. He had to pioneer the path by his death and resurrection. Old Testament men and women of faith will benefit from Jesus' work because they lived and died trusting God's promise. Today we trust in Jesus as the one who fulfills God's promises. We fix our eyes on Jesus Because he's the only way to God. The only way to eternal joy with God. And we're told, Jesus is not only the pioneer we're to have faith in, he's also the one who perfects our faith. We think in terms of a race. What we're being told here is, Jesus didn't just run ahead cross the finish line, and then go off somewhere to do interviews with the press. No, he ran ahead, he crossed the finish line, and immediately he began working to get his people across the finish line. He has blazed the trail, and now he enables us to follow his trail. That's what we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews. 
On the cross, Jesus achieved something that was once for all. He opened the way to God's presence. But having done that, he began a new work. The work of getting you and me to God's presence. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So how are you going to persevere this week? In your own unique circumstances. How are you going to keep trusting God when following God seems like it's sure to make your life harder? How are you going to choose eternal pleasures instead of the fleeting pleasures of sin this week? How are you going to find the courage to throw off the stuff that's hindering your obedience to God? You and I will be able to do those things as we fix our eyes on Jesus. He persevered through much tougher challenges. And it was worth it. In the end, obedience led to eternal joy. And Jesus is committed, he's fully committed to helping us get that same joy. So don't just fix your eyes on Jesus, our example. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As you commit to trust and obey, Jesus will get you across the finish line. He will get you into eternal joy. So do whatever it takes this week to consider him. To fix your eyes on him. That's what we all need to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus together now as we sing Rejoice Believer in the Lord. It's a song that picks up a lot of the things Hebrews has told us. And then we'll sing All I Once Held Dear. <laughs>